Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Welcome to our 24th episode of Not Artificially Sweetened. As usual, with me in studio is Stan Landau. Hello, everybody. Hello, Michael. Hi, Stan. How was your week back at work after a period of leave? It's always good to come back and have some structure and organization. Clinic remaining busy as always. And interestingly enough, seeing a lot of older people, people 80 and above, some with new onset diabetes and some who have been longstanding patients at the clinic where I practice. And always interesting to reflect on the older person with diabetes because their needs and their management of the diabetes differs so vastly from the younger person, from the pediatric case of diabetes. One is almost having to negotiate a downgrade in inverted commas of treatment, mm-hmm. you know, moving away from a more intense outcomes. And it can often be frustrating to unlearn that concept. For sure. We've spoken about the intensification of treatment on a number of occasions. Absolutely right. And the risk of low blood sugar or hypoglycemia becomes vastly dangerous in the older person. And it's interesting when you scroll through your cell phone, as I'm often inclined to do when I have downtime, and I just seen data coming out of the Far East, particularly in China, talking about these population booms, particularly of the older person, Mm -hmm. and how birth rates are plummeting in most developed nations globally. And the older person really going to become the number one population group. And provision of care for the older person is something that needs to be undertaken now, almost like where we were with climate change, you know, 30, 40 years ago, this ozone issue. I think this is going to become a big deal in the years ahead. And I'm not sure our healthcare services, Mm -hmm. particularly with the staffing matters as they are. We spoke about the nursing issues in previous podcasts. It's going to be a big deal. And because diabetes is on the up and the population are getting older and living longer, Mm -hmm. I think there's some choppy waters ahead unless we start taking corrective action and bringing people into healthcare, particularly skilled and adept at looking after the older person. For sure. And it's to have people who are skilled at diabetes care and the care of the older person that's also a challenge because a lot of health practitioners are not comfortable dealing with older people. There still pervades this idea of ageism. People come into the consultation and tell you, you know, doc, we were at the orthopedic surgeon or we were at the urologist and they spoke the whole time to my son or daughter as if I wasn't in the room, wasn't able to participate in that conversation. So we need to be mindful as healthcare professionals that we're not guilty ourselves of ageism in our day-to-day clinical work. As an extension to what you just said, a study came out recently in diabetic medicine that talked about impaired awareness of hypoglycemia, that adults with type 1 diabetes and impaired awareness of hypoglycemia had worse diabetes-related distress. So diabetes-related distress is something that's come into the literature recently, and it ties in also very well with what we've spoken about, the global pandemic of mental health issues something we need to be aware of and looking for in our consultations to find out if people with treated diabetes are aware of their hypoglycemic events before they become severe and try and investigate their emotional responses to that. I can't endorse that enough. Remaining vigilant, key aspect of diabetes management 
Michael, we're blessed this week to have another significant South African join us. All our guests are great. Last week, we interviewed Bruce Fordyce, well-known South African, significant South African. Mm -hmm. And I think our studio guest today, Karen Morn, is a significant South African. She is a specialist legal journalist and analyst at News24, well-known for her analysis of high-profile, far-reaching legal matters. For sure. And is also a documentary producer, broadcaster, and author of three books, including Nuclear, Inside South Africa's Secret Deal. She's produced uh, videos for Amazon, Oscar Pistorius in that sense, and it's brilliant that she she's able to join us today. So Karen from Cape Town, thanks for coming aboard. Thank you guys for having me. What I didn't mention in my introduction, Karen, is that you are also a person who is living with type 1 diabetes. And as we often ask of our studio guests, won't you share just a brief moment with us in terms of your diabetes history? And let's see where that takes us. Well, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was four and a half years old. And I'm 44 now. So that was 40 years ago. And I'm so grateful that the medicine has advanced to the degree that it has. But when I was diagnosed, my mom actually didn't know what diabetes was. She'd had this experience of me as this little kid who suddenly lost a radical amount of weight, was wetting my bed, was downing my brother's coffee in the morning because she used to make us coffee in the morning with heaps of sugar in it. And I was just drinking this. And she mentioned to a friend of hers that she thought maybe I was missing my dad because my dad was overseas at that time. And her friend said to her, listen, I think you need to get her to a doctor because it sounds like it might be diabetes. I think she took me to the doctor and they did tests on me. And of course, at that stage, things were very slow. There weren't the easy diagnoses that you could get. And for whatever reason, they hadn't immediately checked my blood sugar or whatever, but they'd taken tests and they discovered, I think I was around 33 or 36, my blood sugar, very high. And so I was rushed to hospital. And it was very rudimentary at that stage. You used to draw the insulin with those insulin vials, those old school insulin vials. And then I was treated by Professor Benici, who was this amazing diabetes pediatric doctor in Red Cross Children's Hospital. Mm. And then just going through this journey of this wilderness period when I was in Rhodes, where I was convinced that I could cure myself by exercising excessively and getting myself into serious trouble there with high blood sugar. And then later in life, getting into this period of just realizing that this is a complex condition and that it doesn't define me as an individual, because I think I identify so much with my diabetes. It's mm -hmm. literally the second thing that I'll, I'll tell people, I'm a journalist and I'm a diabetic. It's literally the thing that I say. And I'd identified with it to such a degree that I think that when I was out of control or things weren't going well, I resisted going to a doctor because I felt like I was a failure. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, well, if you're not in control of having diabetes, then you're not in control as a human being. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've realized late in life is that this is a difficult condition to manage. It's not who you are. It's a thing that you're living with and people want to help you. I'm encouraged by the language that we use in this podcast, the kind of empathy and compassion that you've tried to push forward with this podcast. Because I think one of the biggest issues that diabetes management has is the sense of identifying so much with the condition that when you aren't managing it, you're fearful of coming forward and saying, look, I'm not coping, I need help. Mm. Whereas my own experience has been that I'm in my best space with this condition when I have people like Dr. Landau help me. And when I can feel like I can say, oh, I've gone so high and I'm so stressed, I don't know what to do. I'm having hypos. How do I manage this? That I feel that I have the space to do that. So that's the space that I'm in now. And that's why I think it's so important that we are having conversations about living with diabetes and that we're in a space that isn't stigmatized, isn't judgmental, and people feel like they can come forward and talk about the condition and get the help that they need. 
I think it was an interview you undertook on 702 where you had spoken about aspects around the diabetes. We're going to come into your brilliant professional career, but were there barriers in the early days as a person with diabetes that you encountered, whether it be professionally at university, perhaps where the support structures were deficient, or perhaps even back as far as high school? One of the blessings was that the deputy headmistress of my school was a person who was living with type 2 diabetes. So I remember having hypos and at one stage getting quite aggressive and flinging a peanut butter sandwich at her head (laughs) and becoming this legend in school because I'd done that. Mm. And she was completely like understanding about it. She was like, look, this is the situation. And I think because she was a person who understood the situation and understood how the condition can affect us, there was never a sense in which I felt like this was hindering me and high school. And I also think because my parents' attitude was, it was literally not an issue that I never felt that I had to conceal it, that I never felt that it was something that I had to hide, that I was so forefronted with it. I would say, look, I'm living with diabetes. You know, I need to eat. I need to do this. I never felt that I had to conceal that. And I've realized later in my life, and I think it's a consequence of being a person with a privileged middle-class white background where, you know, I had access to medical aid. I had access to really good health professionals who were assisting me that I didn't have those apprehensions. I think that, you know, where you are and the kind of level of privilege that you operate in can very much dictate your confidence in expressing the fact that you have this condition. I remember Mandy Ween, she was working with me on the Agliotti trial. She would give me sweets. She'd be like, are you low? All my colleagues knew that I was a person living with diabetes. And so it was never something that was stigmatized. And there was always a great deal of empathy. But when I was working at ENCA, for example, it's high pressure. Mm. And I would have these hypos and I'd be down in Coke and then going on TV. And I look back at that and I think, wow, I didn't really understand the way that stress would impact my body. I would probably have managed the situation differently. But the support that I got, my ENCA colleagues, my Newsroom Africa colleagues, I mean, I used to have very, very bad hypos. And they were always hyper aware of what was going on with me. And they were very willing to help and did help a number of times, far more, I think, than I realized, because, you know, when I had the hypers, I wasn't fully cognizant of what was going on. Well, thanks for sharing those wonderful stories, Karen. For me, as a member of the South African public, I sort of view you as a kind of superhero. And really, I think that you have taken a very principled stand in society. And I think that the opening quote to your book, Nuclear Inside South Africa's Secret Deal, is very telling of your approach to life. To all the people who don't go along with the things they know to be wrong, history is changed for the better by you. And I think you live a life that exemplifies that approach to life. In our episode last week, we were talking about development in humans from a psychosocial point of view, and we went through Eric Erickson's stages of psychosocial development. And all adults are in a stage called generativity versus stagnation, which means we are here to prepare the way for those who follow us. Further to that, looking at all the cases you seem to be steeped in as an investigative and legal journalist, you seem to be mired in the underbelly of society. Mm. I cannot believe the cases you've come across. It's almost like you are fighting a spiritual battle. Mm. Our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Tell us about the use of your talents and how you manage your diabetes against I can't imagine the enormous stressors you must come across. I'm so glad because you are quoting from the Bible there. And my faith is a huge part of why I do what I do, because I honestly believe we are all put on this earth for a purpose. 
And I've never believed that God will give me a struggle that I can't cope with. Mm. And the thing is that Dr. Landau has been someone who's been amazing to me as my doctor, because I've always felt like this poor man gets emails from me at odd hours of the day and morning and whatever, just saying, well, this has happened. What must I do? But I've always had this incredible sense of support from him. And I've always been so, in this last season of my diabetes, so grateful for it. But it is hard. When Jacob Zuma accused me of stealing his medical records, when I'd actually just obtained court papers from the NPA that his lawyers had filed containing a sick note. And that was this complete mistruth and untruth. And so much so that I was in one instance actually confronted by an Uber driver who was like, well, why do people hate you so much? What have you done? Mm -hmm. And I thought, my God, like, I don't know how this is going to end up. And I had to sort of talk this person out of his anger towards me. This is actually what happened. There are a lot of very scary moments. I mean, I've had Zuma's daughter openly incite violence towards me. That was what the high court actually found, that there was an open incitement of violence. And I spoke to my colleague, Marion Tam from Daily Maverick, and she said to me, why do you think we keep doing this, even though people abuse us and harass us and intimidate us? And I said to her, I was like, Marion, can you look yourself in the mirror? And she said, yes. And I said, exactly. Mm -hmm. South Africa is not an easy place. We're at war at the moment for the soul of this country. And I really believe that history will judge all of us. And we can't be a spectator. We can't be apathetic. And God has put me in this position for a reason. And I will fight for as long as hard as I have to. But it has had consequences. I've had extremely bad hypos. Dr. Landau knows, like when I've ended these periods of stress, my blood sugar will shoot through the roof or plummet. Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, up and down, up and down. And it's just the sense of, oh my God, what am I going to do? Right. I need to try and control my body, but my blood sugar is so up and down. You know, when this case first happened, I was extremely erratic with my blood sugar. And it was hard to try and find that place of, okay, this is the situation. How do we manage it? How do I try and reduce the danger to myself? And, you know, I'll finish up now, but having elderly parents and I was staying with my parents and going into these severe hypers where my poor dad was having massive and is still having massive anxiety because he had to give me injections to get my blood sugar up. It's taken a massive strain on my family. And as much as you want to be brave and you want to present this picture like, oh, these, these guys won't get to me, it's not the truth. They do get to you. You do suffer consequences. And seeing the consequences on my parents is something that I still carry deep guilt about and deep sadness because they're elderly. They should be enjoying their time. But because of what's happened to me, they've been put in this place of anxiety, particularly with my diabetes, that I'm going to get into a situation where the stress of the situation ends up having a catastrophic diabetic event. And that's something that I still struggle to process. Mm -hmm. Are they people of faith themselves? Yes, both of them are. I think my mom manages it better than my dad because she always said God has promised her that he'll protect me. And she says she doesn't fear me dying because she knows where I'll end up. But my father has this deep anxiety that I will have some kind of catastrophic event and suffer. I think that the fear for him is brain damage. And I think it's something we don't talk about as diabetics, this thing that we live with that can have dark consequences. And I think that I, yeah, I mean, this is a very emotional conversation and I'm trying not to cry. Me too. But like, yeah, I mean, I think that's something for him that he worries about. Mm -hmm. He really worries about, you know? Yeah. How often, Michael, we've heard from our guests and in the day-to-day -day clinic of a parent sleeping with one eye open or a bed partner sleeping with one eye open just in case. And we hear from people with diabetes, how, Doc, if I live alone, I'm a single mom, I'm raising my kids, 
I prefer to eat two peanut butter sandwiches before I go to bed at night so that I don't have a low. Because the last time it happened, Barney, the neighbor next door, had to come in. He had to break the door down to come inside the house. So Karen's story resonates so commonly heard in that sense. Mm. But here's dad, doesn't matter how old you are, our parents love us and our parents want to do everything to look after their kids. Mm. Thanks so much for sharing that, Karen. A deeply personal note that no doubt resonates with certainly me as a clinician and perhaps others who are out there. Mm. And it would be great to hear from our audience, you know, if you've had a similar experience in that sense or you still remain anxious because a hundred years after the development of insulin treatment, low blood glucose remains still a very, very important poor clinical outcome in the setting of both type 1 and people with type 2 diabetes, perhaps less so. But as we spoke about for the older patient at the beginning of the podcast, they're not immune either. Mm, Absolutely. We're going to take a short break to listen to a diabetes advocacy message from SA Diabetes Advocacy. Let's take a listen. We'll catch you on the other side. SA Diabetes Advocacy work on several advocacy projects that are spread across the different types of diabetes, as well as across private and public healthcare. We work with diabetes advocates on these projects to ensure that we are tackling some of the biggest issues that people living with diabetes are facing in South Africa. For some people with diabetes, food insecurity is their biggest issue. Imagine not knowing when your next meal is or not having any resources available to correct a sugar low. Many people who face food insecurity with diabetes are not taking their insulin. Food grants and disability grants are not available to them. But there are many non-profit organizations that have set up successful feeding schemes before. For example, the Lions Club across South Africa have feeding schemes and a particular focus on diabetes. What if we connected each public clinic with a specific Lions Club so that individuals who are food insecure could have access to their feeding scheme? We recently discovered that Green Pop also has an incredible individual program that tackles food insecurity. We hope that by 2024, we'll be able to collaborate with another organization to bring food security to those living with diabetes. If you'd like to read more about the campaigns we are working on, please visit diabetesadvocacy.org.za. So thanks again to Kirsten from SA Diabetes Advocacy talking about a pervasive topic in South African society, that of food insecurity. And we've talked many times on this podcast about the socioeconomic determinants of health. Karen, what is your take on that message from SA Diabetes Advocacy? And it's it's something that I think is is massively, massively significant is this inequality and in how it is a life and death issue for so many members or people living with diabetes who are who are living in poverty. Well, I remember Dr. Landau talking to me about the work that the CDE does with children, the kids who have access to private health care and the kids who are in the state system. And I think that the state doctors really do try their best to assist these children. And my sister has said to me before that the state system is actually very good. But I remember Dr. Landau telling me the story about this young man, I think he was 17, talking at one of these diabetic events where they merge state and private kids in the private system. And this young man saying that he had suffered a low and he'd asked his mom for peanut butter sandwich and she'd said, but we don't have food in the house. Oh, terrible. And anyone living with diabetes knows that feeling of absolute terror when you are going through a low and for whatever reason, you don't have access to sugar Mm, mm. and the panic, the absolute panic. I've been in hotels where I've lurched towards the reception desk and just said, please get me a Coke. And because I'm resourced and because I could articulate that need, and I think about that child and I just, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And you just think, what what happened in that situation? You know, it's something that really keeps me up at night. Mm. Yeah. And it should, because it can't be that a child is in that situation because they don't have access to food. It cannot be. I know that our country is overstretched and beyond itself, but we have to do something to make sure that that is not the reality for children with diabetes who happen to be living below the poverty line. It can't be. 
I think this speaks very well to social justice, mm. Michael, the way in which you spoke about Karen's kind of biblical notion of the good versus evil, and I 100% agree with that. Karen had mentioned this idea that she had grown up in a privileged setting, never wanted for anything in that sense. No. Karen, where does social justice leave South Africans? Because in essence, you can see a chasm emerging globally at the moment. So I don't want to use the word apartheid, but the sense that if you have access to wonderful diabetes treatments, if you have access to even basic diabetes care and good insulin and modern day delivery devices, continuous blood glucose monitoring, kind of seeing this divergence globally between modern day diabetes and to hell with everybody else in the pharma industry, almost kind of saying, well, we've moved on from there. It's so unfair. You know, I was recently in America and you think of America supposedly like a developed society, <laughs> but there was a story recently, a friend of mine sent me that this young man who had crowdfunded for his insulin and died $20 before he got his target. I mean, how is that? One of my really big issues is that there's this weird stigmatization sometimes that occurs around the issue of people living with type 2 diabetes. But type 2 diabetes, there's a whole range of issues that can lead to that. But there's also the question of poverty. I've lived in an informal settlement. I know that people don't often have fridges, that people are very dependent on carbohydrate-rich diets, that to get to their jobs working in an affluent neighborhood, they have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to take multiple taxis to get to that job. Mm. And then sugar is a natural sort of choice around, okay, well, I need a quick energy boost. Let me have coffee with four tablespoons of sugar in it. There's not that education around the consequences of that. And so poverty is often linked to, I think, the development of people having type 2 diabetes. And then in these circumstances, you know, I've been in areas where someone will be living with type 2 diabetes, but they're getting access to healthcare. Their feet are in a shocking condition. And I'm literally like, you know, maybe is it not a good idea to go and see someone? And they're like, well, you know, getting the taxi to the hospital, the kind of stress and strain that it takes for them to do that. And by the time they get that help, it's obviously in too dire a situation for that situation to be salvaged. In many instances, the fact that we have this condition or live with this condition is a genetic lottery. And we happen to have drawn a bad card. I don't take it for granted that I was born into the circumstance where my diabetes was almost instantly diagnosed and I've lived with healthcare and the provision of healthcare. And when I've got into comas, my family could call an ambulance and I could have my life saved. My sister, she's a doctor. She's an immensely brilliant physician. She works within the state system. She has dedicated her life to working in the state system. She has recently been diagnosed with type 1, which is obviously indicating that it has a genetic component within our family. She phoned me. She hasn't been diagnosed with type 1 at that stage, but she phoned me the one day sobbing because she was working at Baragwanath and this 19-year-old girl had suffered a hypo and hadn't been able to get help. And she died. And my sister had spent 50 minutes trying to resuscitate her. And she was sobbing and she said, I kept thinking it was you. And seeing this young woman, her name was Gugu, and getting her body zipped up in a body bag and her little braids peeking out top, thinking, were it not for her conditions, she could have lived. And that's something that sticks with me all the time. Privilege, it isn't just an issue of access to great healthcare and just the quality of life that I have that so many people living with diabetes in the state system don't have. Mm -hmm. It's a life or death issue. 
I think until we start taking that seriously. And I also think it's not just, to, oh, you know, being nice. No, this is something that could really affect health budgets long term. The state system, until it starts taking education, care, quality of life seriously for people living with diabetes in that system, it's going to be dealing with the burden of amputations. It's going to be dealing with the burden of dialysis. Mm. It's going to be dealing with the burden of diabetic retinopathy, blindness, which all have devastating impacts. Mm. So it makes financial sense for our system to start gearing itself towards proper care of people with diabetes now, giving them a quality of life now, because the burden of not doing that will be devastating for the system. And I think it makes sense to care for people with diabetes now rather than to let them get complications and live terrible lives because you want to treat them like they're not human beings. I don't agree with that at all. Are you anxious about national health as it comes on board at this point in time, recognizing that the infrastructure your sister worked in and saw that fantastical story? I mean, it, it harks back to medieval times almost in that sense. Where National health diabetes making you anxious? I completely support a system that allows people to live with a decent quality of life. But unfortunately, my own experience with our government is that the anxiety is that there's just going to be more corruption, that there's going to be a use of this to loot even further than it has been looted in the past. And I mean, my colleague, Jeff Wicks, the stories that he has done about Babita Dekaran and the kind of things that she was uncovering at the time that she was murdered is indicative of how the health system has been abused by people who just want to steal. You know, I think that that's the heartbreak of the average South African. If we believed that our taxes were going towards what they needed to be going towards, I have no problem giving that money to wherever it needs to go because we come from an apartheid system. We come from gross racial segregation, the diminishment of black lives, people being treated like they weren't human beings, that they weren't citizens, cheap labor, poor education, all of that abuse. If I knew that my tax money was going to go towards the rectification of that, I would give that money over a hundred times gratefully. But we know that that's not the case. And I think that the anxiety around healthcare and the way in which NHI has been introduced in a system that is clearly not coping already is a great cause of anxiety, understandable, justifiable anxiety. In my mind, Karen, that brings us full circle back to your current role in society. For over two decades, you have been fighting the good fight to expose the misuse of public funds, the criminal elements in our society. Going back to another biblical principle of using one's talents, I see in you someone who's using the talents that you've got. Well said. And yes, you've shared that in many ways you are more privileged than many other people in society. Mm. And the biblical principle is that if you use your talents, they will be amplified. And if you don't use them, they will be taken away from you. And I think you are certainly sowing your talents as intended. Are there any things, talents, it's very hard for me to even say this because, as I said, I view you almost as a superhero. Are there any talents that you maybe don't have and what's the message in that? Well, you know, the interesting thing was when I was about six or seven, they put me on a trampoline. I think I was in sub-A or pre-primary and I just stood there looking at my teacher like, what do you expect me to do? And as a consequence of that, they actually found out that I had brain damage as a result of a forceps birth. There's certain things that I really, I can't drive a manual car. 
I struggle with hand-eye coordination. <laughs> I can't catch a ball to save my life. I was terrible at sports. I only learned to tie my shoelaces when I was about 16 and learned to tell the time when I was 16. They had this conversation with my parents where they said maybe she needs to go to special school wow. and be educated in an environment that caters for her particular neurological issues. And my mom said, look, my daughter likes to read and she likes to draw. So let's just see what she can manage. And if she needs to go to a school that caters for people with her range of issues, then so be it, but we'll just see how we go. And so she took me to the library every single day and I just devoured books and my brain compensated massively in the direction of language. And I think the thing is, is that oftentimes as human beings, we get so overcome by the things that we can't do that we forget about the things that we can. And I think that if I'd been born in a home where there was a greater anxiety over the issues that I presented as a child, my type 1 diabetes, this brain damage issue that I'd suffered, I would have possibly never been able to do what I've been able to do. Mm -hmm. My parents never told me. They took me to a remedial teacher and I had to sit on a ball. Mm -hmm. And I do remember at one stage thinking, you know, this is quite interesting. What's up with all these other kids? But not realizing or not computing that, oh, this is because you allegedly have this deficiency. I never grew up in that language of there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you because you have diabetes. There's something wrong with you because you have these neurological issues. I never bought into that people who have children with diabetes, I understand completely the anxiety that you live with. As someone who lives with this condition and is made anxious by it, being a parent of a child, especially a very young child, must be completely overwhelming to you. But I really encourage you you know, I was blessed with parents that despite their anxiety, really never communicated to me that there was anything that I couldn't do. My parents let me go to Rhodes. You know, I went into university on my own. I went through huge ups and downs, struggles and things came very close, but I never grew up with fear. And I think that that's that area that you have to navigate of understandable anxiety, but not inhibiting living, putting a cage on your child because you want to protect them. You know, I would really encourage you to try and get to that place because my own experience of, and then I huge gratitude to my parents for that, is that I didn't grow up with fear. And I think as a result, I was able to go out and do things that had I been told that I had certain deficits, that there were things that I couldn't do, that I was living with this life-threatening condition, wah, 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 wah. I would never have been able to do what I've done. But I didn't grow up with fear because it was never communicated to me. And I think that changed my life and changed what I was capable of. Some wonderful words of wisdom there, Karen. I think that so many people with diabetes and parents of kids who have diabetes can take careful note of. And I think that ties in so well with what we discussed last week, how human beings develop psychosocially and how you've grown up to be a well-integrated, highly functional member of South African society because of the inclusive use of language, the non-judgmental approach of your parents their steadfastness in, in providing you with the best that they could offer as parents to you. So, wow. You know, the thing is, is that I do have periods where I just am very overwhelmed and where I just feel like I'm not coping. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm saying that we buy into this thing. And I think people are very well-meaning because they have this whole issue of your control must be perfect. Mm -hmm. This is so great. Mm -hmm. It's not the reality. And it's definitely not the reality in South Africa. I love this country, but if I had to use a word for it, I would say traumatized on multiple levels. It is a very traumatized and very traumatic society. 
And we live with a constant sense of alarm and a constant sense of dread because we don't know what's around the corner. It doesn't mean we don't love our country, but this is the reality that we're in. Mm. And to grow up with this or to have this idea that in order to be the perfect person mm. with diabetes, you have to have perfect readings and you have to be perfectly in range. And look at my amazing chart. No, there's no such thing as a perfect diabetic inverted commas. The best you can do is to just, you are a human being. You are trying your best and there are people who want to help you. And your readings being up or down is not a reflection of you as a human being. You know, you're trying your best. If you're a person with a child or family member with diabetes, you are trying your best. And for a person with diabetes, one of the things that I've also realized is that oftentimes because we are going through the hypo or we're going through the period, you know, where our levels are not good or out of control or we need hospitalization or we need medical care, Mm And oftentimes when I've been in a coma, I have no idea what that's like. I have no idea what it's like for that person who loves me to see me fitting, to see me out of it, to see me unconscious. And I come out of it and they're distressed and they want to talk about it and they want to fix things. And I'm just like, let's move on. You know, I'm fine now. Also for people who are living with diabetes, where lows and things are huge issues of emotional sensitivity, just understand that that loved one is coming from a space of love and they are seeing you in a position where you are really like in a bad way and that their attempts to reach out to you after that and to discuss it with you and to try and find solutions isn't them being overbearing, isn't them bossing you around or making out that you're failing, it's them loving you. And they've had an experience of you that they don't want to see again. And that's where they're coming from. And oftentimes as people living with diabetes, because we don't have that experience, we get quite hostile when people try and engage with us on that level. It's just because they love you and it's because they don't want to see you in that space again. And it's all of us just caring for ourselves, for each other, saying, okay, let's come from the space of empathy. Let's try and figure this out. There's no judgment. There's no stigma. This is a hard thing. We want to get through it. We want to be healthy. We want to be strong. Let's do that together. Amazing. From my side, Michael, formidable is a word that comes to mind. Mm. Thank you, Karen. We are so blessed to have had you on the show. Can I maybe leave you with this blessing? When I go out into the bush and it's a dark, dark night and there's no moon in the sky, the darkness can be almost palpable, almost overwhelming. But the scriptures tell us that the light of a candle shining in the darkness, it can be seen for kilometers. And the darkness, even though it may feel so palpable and overwhelming, can never overcome that light. And we celebrate you as a significant South African, shining your light in the darkness. And thank you for your service to the country. Thank you so much. That's the scripture that I always come back to even the smallest light can overcome the darkness. And like, I always say that to people, even if you're a single candle in a dark room, you will light that room up. So don't be afraid. Just keep shining your light. Don't put your light under the bed. Don't hide it. You're a city on a hill. And I mean, it's ironic in this time of low shooting, but light really does matter. And in the end of the day, you know, you just be brave and keep shining because you will make a difference. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And oh, for sure. I really appreciate what you guys are doing and good luck with it. And I just encourage you to keep doing it because the more we talk about this, the more we find spaces of love, empathy, and commonality, the more this community grows. I think the more people we will reach and the more lives we'll touch. And yeah, I would just encourage you to keep going with it. 
Michael, what a show we've had today. Phenomenal guest. I keep coming back to this idea of superhero. Karen, you shared some of the most deeply personal aspects of your own diabetes, that of your sister, your family, the community you grew up in, lived in, and ripples onto the rest of South Africa, and in fact global, because like it or not, previous president, really up to no good in that sense. And we're blessed to have people like you around as advocates, providing advocacy for diabetes, providing advocacy for betterment of society in that sense. And I think it's a brilliant way to end the show. Thank you for so much for sharing all of this with us today. For those listeners who've joined us on this podcast, Not Artificially Sweetened, I think we've had the most incredible show today. And if you want to catch us on your favorite social media channel, whether that be on the Google podcast, on Spotify, or on Bullhorn, we're here. And we look forward to bringing you a podcast in the next week. Many thanks to those of you who've shared your comments, your stories, and your reflections on these podcasts. And we'd like to keep hearing from you at podcast at cdediabetes.coza. From me, Dr. Stan Landau in Johannesburg, have a most marvelous and blessed week ahead, and I look forward to meeting you next time. And from me, Michael Brown, thank you to Karen. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. We'll catch you again next week. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!